Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult, yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. So major purpose of our podcast is to really create a sense of empathy and understanding, to create a sense of relatability across different people, particularly across people with privilege and those without that privilege. But having a sense of relatability and understanding can be a tricky thing or tricky and complex thing. I'll give you an example. So there is a politician here in Canada who in the not so distant past had said that he was able to understand what it felt like to be treated differently, to be a person of color or a person from a marginalized group because he had always been tall. And that was something that I think he said in earnest and was really trying his best to relate, but came across as quite offensive because it, I don't think that that individual truly understood what it meant to be struggling with difficulties of racism and discrimination. And there's a difference there. So people mean well, people try to relate as best as they can to have a sense of empathy But without a true understanding of what the experience of being discriminated feels like and the multiple layers of it, it's easy to offend people. And what that tends to do is it further separates us instead of bringing us closer together. That's such an interesting and really powerful example of trying to build a bridge and mistaking the idea that because you know what it's like to feel different, in this case, the example you're giving, I'm different because I'm taller, that there's some sort of equivalency to I understand difference because I've experienced being teased about it, that it's been commented on. But I guess my question when I hear a story like that is, you know, how did it disadvantage you in terms of your ability to gain access to education, your ability to get a job. Um, And I think maybe that's some of the pieces that are missing. And as you were saying that, I actually was thinking a similar thing about my own life, which kind of shows me that I'm, I think, guilty of the same thing. Uh, I've talked before about growing up in Quebec. And I, uh, and and this is not a, a blanket generalization, but it was true for me that most of my friends were smaller in stature, had dark hair and dark eyes. I'm not saying that all Quebecers are short and with brown hair and brown eyes, but my experience in the town I grew up in was that was largely the case. And I was taller and I was blonde and blue eyes. And I felt in a way I stood out physically. I looked different. In fact, I have photographs of myself that I could even recall in which I am sort of the tallest person in the group. But I realize as we're having this conversation, just because I was different doesn't mean that I understand other kinds of differences. And I think I'm, I'm 
have lots, a lot to learn about making too quick an assumption that I can relate to other people's experiences when I truly do not understand the real difference. People try hard to relate, to have a great sense of empathy, and it's very endearing. But discrimination is just a whole other animal because you can never really escape from it. And I think that's where it's important for people to understand what that feels like. Lisa, one of the things I really like about you is your ability to be able to accept a perspective. And so many of us can't get out of our own heads, you know, that we feel our experiences so personally that to be able to step out of that place is almost threatening for a lot of people. But that's what we need to do in this case to truly understand what that experience is like for people who are marginalized to recognize our privilege. I talk often about the fact that I have male privilege, that I could speak to the experiences of women color, but I'm not a woman of color. I'm not a woman, period. And so I will carry with me a privilege. You know, uh, when I'm with women in my life, uh, it's not uncommon that the people I'm speaking with, let's say a salesperson or whatever, will speak to me versus the woman that I'm with. So I, I recognize that, but I can't live that experience. Recognizing that, being able to not take offense to be asked to step out of our own experience is, is a good place to start. I think where it feels tricky and maybe even a bit anxiety provoking is when you have the desire, which I have, to want to understand and want to learn, but I am also afraid of inadvertently offending or saying something that in my, in my earnest effort to step into the into language that's unfamiliar to me that I'm in fact outing myself as being really stupid and ignorant around issues mm. that you know people live with their entire lives i mean i you know i've I've talked about this a bit before where I feel such a sense of hesitancy around describing people as is different in terms of skin color. So one of the examples for me is, you know, and, and when you think about this, it shows up in sports teams, particularly like, you know, the Reds, those are supposed to be the Indians, right? Or this idea that Asians are yellow and that African Canadians or people from Caribbean communities and many, many parts of the world, is the word, is the word black or is the word the ethnocultural origin? And I find myself sometimes not knowing what to say, so I don't say anything because I don't want to reveal my ignorance and my anxiety. And I, that's, that's the beauty of all of this, I think, is when we talk about being more vulnerable about our, our lack of awareness is really where we relate with people. It's that assumption that we make, and when we stick that at assumption, is why I think when we offend people. If we're more honest or open to, to disclose that we don't understand, that's where I think we have that sense of relatability to show that sense of vulnerability to somebody because people of color, people from uh, ethnic, cultural or religious minorities, women, they've faced that sense of uh, vulnerability on a regular basis. And I think when you demonstrate that you don't understand, it shows that you have that vulnerability or at least some level of it as well too. And it, and it allows you to be able to have a discourse or a conversation that most people couldn't have. The fear of offending people, the fear of saying the wrong thing can actually make us appear like we are more discriminatory than we actually are. Because what can happen is we make an error, 
we don't want to admit that or we're fearful of that and we stay quiet. And the only impression the other person is left with is that you've made an assumption and have refused to own up on that error. People are very flexible. People are very happy to explain and understand so long as you actually describe that you don't know. And then you use that as an opportunity for learning because the next time you do know. Yeah. And I'm thinking of something you posted on Instagram some time ago, and it was a picture of a truck. And on the side of it, I think it was Doritos or some kind of you know chip company. And uh, <laughs> it was Ramadan. And yes. even though I am not Muslim and I don't observe the the time of Ramadan of fasting, I got it. I, I, you know, there was a relatability to me and I thought it was funny, but it also communicated something to me about, about what it's like to be a Muslim. Like you're probably still hungry during the day as opposed <laughs> to, you know, this idea that I might have an assumption or a bias that, that you wouldn't be, that you wouldn't crave a bag of chips in the middle of the day when, you know, you're on day three of Ramadan. Yeah, yeah, this damn Doritos truck. The Doritos only, truck, yeah. Only, only during the month of Ramadan kept driving by my office with giant Doritos on the side of it. Yeah, and there's that sense of relatability, and that's nice. But I think you got that because you probably got to know me. We had a conversation. Uh, you knew other people who are Muslim as well, too. But it's that conversation. It's that understanding. It's that ongoing communication that allows us to have that sense of relatability that prevents us from being able to make false assumptions. Right. I, you know, I think you and I had a discussion at some point in time where you said, you eat a lot of junk food. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. no, just cake, just cake. Uh, but, but you're like, I thought Muslims eat healthy. And, you know, it's a harmless little assumption. Uh, and we, but because we've had that rapport, we can have that conversation. Right. When we don't know people, we don't understand it's important to be able to caveat any assumptions with, I'm not sure if I got this right and I'm trying to understand. Yeah. And that might make people feel like they're falsely coming across as apologetic and it's not. It's simply coming across as honest. Right. And creating an awareness that you understand what it feels like, that you, you don't want to offend. And that intent is really important because the vast experiences of discrimination that many people have experienced is, is out of that intent to offend. And so when you clarify that, look, I'm not trying to offend, I want to understand, could you help me understand? That changes everything. And you can make those mistakes now because you're doing it in an effort to learn and, and people are very happy to teach and help you understand that perspective. Because I, I feel sometimes, and I felt this, I think, to a large extent in, in much of my life, and it's hard to describe it, but this feeling that because I'm white, I'm somehow responsible for every act of genocide. Like there's something in me, in my whiteness, that I carry with me the either the seed of potential racist behavior or that my, I've, you know, we've talked about privilege. And I actually struggle a bit around the word of privilege. And I get it, like when it's explained to me, in conversations you and I've had and, and I've had with other either people of color or people from the LGBTQ community, that there is certainly a different treatment of people who are accepted as the quote unquote norm. And I would say at the same time, 
I have had experiences in my life in which I have not felt privileged. I have felt that I have been treated poorly based on the fact that I'm a woman or mm. that I, I mean, I, you know, I, I almost hesitate to say this, but it was my experience when I was much younger growing up in Quebec. I felt like I was treated in a way because I wasn't French Canadian, that I was not one of us. I was a them. And so mixed in with my sense of privilege is also my sense of being told that I'm an outsider. Yes, absolutely. What you're talking about is certainly a sense of relatability from being discriminated and marginalized for sure. But that difficulty you talk about, and that guilt or that fear you talk about carrying that, you know, the, the seeds of potential racism, you know, it's a common word of white fragility or white guilt. And although in some ways we have to recognize we're each our own person, in some ways you're right. You do carry that. But then so do I. And let me tell you why I think that's the case. Is because there's a sense of complacency in how the world runs. And most people, when they're comfortable and not pushed, they become complacent. And so they don't challenge. If the world doesn't challenge you, you don't challenge it and you carry on with your life. And you may not intentionally be intending to be racist, but the complacency to simply accept the way things are because your world isn't disrupted for the most part allows you to carry through with the system that can be quite discriminatory. But the interesting thing is it's not just white people doing that. It's people of color. And people of color might experience that discrimination but will bend over backwards to quote-unquote assimilate, to adopt a set of values or to practices that might not be theirs just simply to fit in. And that can happen in the workplace. But even the days off that we take, people will not take a day off that's important to them just because they're afraid it will make them look like they are too one way or the other. A friend of mine was actually the medical chief of a hospital like top dog yeah, and really wanted to take time off for Friday prayer and was so fearful that if he did now, technically in policy, he could, he could work it out, but the fear of judgment left him like left him in his place to say, I can't go for Friday prayer, even though it was something that was very important to him. And so he would miss it for years just because of that fear. And the complacency comes with uh, people in a majority who might say, well, you know, we've got this policy. So if people want it, they'll take it. Not understanding a system that forces people to comply. And that, that complacency, you know, allow, because people, people, the majority of people that are not going for Friday prayer, so they don't think to say, hey, do you want to go for Friday prayer? Versus just saying, there's a policy written here that you could possibly do that if you want it. Or what can we do to make yourself feel comfortable? Like, I don't want to offend you. Maybe you don't go for Friday prayer, but... I know a lot of Muslims do go for Friday prayer. Is that something you'd like? And if that's the case, you know, I, I don't want to come across as offensive to make an assumption that it's important for you. But if it is, how could we make it easier for you? Yeah. And so now that person has a choice, whereas before they felt they did not. Yeah. And, you know, I hear that and I think, well, I don't have to ask for Easter off. I don't have to ask for Christmas off. Like we've made these decisions as societies all over the world about what are the appropriate times to take off for particular religious, well, ostensibly religious yeah. practices. Not even that. Cultural ones. Sorry? Even cultural ones. 
right? Like even Christmas is a cultural holiday. Exactly. There's, there's they a lot originate of people in, in Christian, they originate in Christian traditions, but they become so entrenched. And of course they've shifted and they have, you know, also pagan roots, um, which I always thought was funny as an aside that at the same time, you know, Christ has died on the cross and is resurrected. People are eating chocolate bunnies, which as a child, I never understood how we connected these things until I understood later that there, that there was a pagan ritual around spring that involved rabbits because rabbits, of course, start procreating in the spring and that, right. you know, the Catholic Church or, you know, Christian, Christianity had appropriated some pagan traditions and incorporated them in order to propagate Christianity. But of course, as a child, you don't know these things. All you know is that Easter's coming up, you have time off, and there's going to be chocolate for you when you get up on Sunday morning at the breakfast table. Yeah, and let's, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about this great presence to assimilate, to become like a majority. I often talk about my, my son, who I can watch things happen in him. You know, him saying, I've said in my TED Talk before that he said that he didn't want to be a Muslim at close to three because he didn't see Paw Patrol celebrate anything but Christmas. Yeah. Just the other day, we were, we were signing on to a Hogwarts like, gaming app and he could create a little avatar. And Yusuf has uh, dark brown eyes and he was insistent that he wanted blue ones as an avatar. And it speaks to... It speaks to the influence a greater society has on a people yeah. on an ongoing basis that impacts us at a very early age in our life. And I often speak about how people of color, people from marginalized groups, we are born into a conflict when we live in a quote unquote Western world. When we are, but I would say that actually across the board because colonialism has promoted this idea. I see photographs of refugees holding up uh, dolls who are all white and look nothing like those children. And that's not just with refugees, people around the world. I grew up in Tanzania reading books that were imported to Tanzania from the UK with always white children and me thinking that there was something wrong with me because I didn't have rosy cheeks. Yeah. So we carry that burden with us for a long period of time. And that's, that's the experience of being a person of color. That's the experience of not being from the quote unquote, the majority. And that's that layer of privilege that we can never get rid of. And so I hear about your experiences and they're tragic and you're right. But at some level you can step away and you can fit in. There is some place where you can. That's right. There's a place, there's always a place I can fit in. And I I don't have that. Right. And there's these layers of that. So like I, like it can happen within a majority, that can happen within a smaller cultural community. I remember growing up in a Muslim community and because, and at that time, the two primary cultural communities in the Muslim community were either Arab or Indian or Pakistani. And I was neither. You know, I, I was Zanzibari, which had mixed bloodlines from several different places, and I could never really fit in there either. And so it's interesting that we do this as human beings and and that that concept of microaggressions, the concept of discrimination, the concept of marginalization, it doesn't, yes, it falls upon the white community, but it falls upon all of us and we all do it. 
and people of color will internalize that racism as a sense of normalcy. We become complacent in those things. We see those as a sense of civility of what we must do to be professional, to be Western, to be Canadian, so much so that we wash away huge elements of who we are that to the point where we see it as normal that superheroes need to be white, that leaders need to be white. There's research that speaks to the fact that when we see leadership, we see white. And if we simply look at all the leaders we've elected here in Canada, although we've had diversity in Canada for a very, very long time, we've always elected white men, except for one woman, Kim Campbell, who wasn't elected and, and yet didn't even have an opportunity to last for a very long period of time. This kind of phenomenon exists across the board in society, in communities, but also in organizations. And when we don't recognize it, when we have a sense of complacency, when we are fearful of our fragility, of our guilt, of our anxiety, it prevents us from creating organizations, communities, society, that is truly inclusive or where people have a greater sense of belonging. So Raymond, your background is as a psychologist, and I'm, I guess I'm asking this question in two dimensions, because I think what you're talking about in part is a, is a sense of belonging to something, mm-hmm. like belonging to a community or belonging to the world, really. What is it about us that makes it so difficult to be inclusive and to create a sense of belonging for those who are different than we are? I think you never had this discussion before, the idea of us versus them. Yeah. I think we compartmentalize our identities into how we see ourselves. Us men, those women, us women, those men. We don't recognize that our organization of who we are and identity is already kind of built into our head. We don't recognize we carry around those. And we do. And it becomes stronger when you become a part of a majority. And when we see a lack of inclusion, the research shows that we, it falsely creates a sense of artificial superiority. And so the irony is that what promotes a lot of the us versus them is us not addressing this topic. Right. And yet, interestingly enough, when we do address this topic, we tend to get dismissed and pushed aside. And, and I think we should be having this discussion at some point in time, this concept of microaggressions. But, you know, this whole concept of holidays, like uh, we've approached, our team had approached our mayor and actually another leadership organization helped approach the mayor to say, we need to be able to celebrate or at least acknowledge the cultural holidays of all local citizens in our city And the response, and and actually a a large media organization actually had approached the mayor, and the response was simply, if I may summarize, we already do enough. And the the thing is, we don't. And I live in a city that was deemed the most racist city, according to McLean's magazine, and the response from the mayor is, we've done enough. And that's that sense of complacency. You know, and the mayor does try, but I just don't think tries in a way that really is making that change. And, and that's, that's a really frustrating and challenging thing when people of color or people in marginalized groups try to step forward to make change, they're often swept aside. Right. And the, the other research shows that actually allies make the change. 
And that's, it's sad, but it's true that if a white person were to ask for the same rights for people of color, they're more likely to get it than people of color or marginalized people were at ask for it themselves. And it, that alone speaks to the fact that we've got a long way to go. But I think it all begins with us being able to, to step outside our own experience and being able to see a larger group of people contained in the us column. Yeah. I had that experience years ago when I worked at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, where many of us in society carry a bias against people who we perceive to be different by virtue of having a mental health problem, issue, mm-hmm. concern. Could be behavioral. Clearly, when you, know, you look at the statistics around people who are either in shelters or are homeless, there's a higher prevalence of people with mental health problems. And I felt you know, heartened by the fact that in the last decade, there have been some pretty, I think, strong attempts around destigmatizing people who carry these issues. And part of, I think, what you're, in a weird way, you're kind of talking about allies, uh, but it, and it's a bit different, where there are campaigns around people who are famous or known who out themselves as having either had postpartum depression or that they're on medication for bipolar disorder. And it creates a kind of normalcy around mm-hmm. that these, this is the human condition. And we are all here on this planet and we should all be entitled to live the best lives that we possibly can. And this idea again of allies, I mean, I, I don't quite know how for myself, like I, I, I'm kind of making it up as I go along if I, if I were to consider myself an ally to use the, the language, because there's no, maybe there is, and I'm just, again, haven't investigated, but a way to learn how to be a powerful ally But there's something I struggle in with that is why should I, because I'm white, be the one who's seen to be making the chain? Like, why aren't we listening to people who are already telling us from marginalized communities? Why does it take allies? It kind of makes me like I want to be an ally and I'm kind of pissed off that we need allies at the same time. Right. Yeah, it's true. And I, I think it just is the frank truth is that the voice and the experience of people from marginalized communities, including people of color, ethnic, cultural, and religious minorities, doesn't matter as much. And that's a sad truth. But it is the stage where we're at in this, in this point in time, and we've got to work with it. This is what we have to work with to be able to make change, with the hope that in the future that we are listening to people's voices equally, that people have enough of a sense of belonging, that we're able to hear each other's points of view because we see ourselves in each other, I say this, this is now the third time I'm saying this. This is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. You know, it's for us to be able to see ourselves in each other, regardless of our differences, that the differences are only surface level. Cultural practices, skin color, those are all ultimately surface level. You know, what we choose to eat might vary, but the truth is we all have a sense of hunger. And if we can recognize that, and look past the food that we eat, we can understand that we have that sense of humanity about us and we can relate to that. Yeah. And that we have to understand that, you know, the food that we put on the table can't always just be the food that we want to eat. It's got to be the food that, that everybody would like to eat. 
And sometimes that means us going out of our way to understand how to cook different kinds of food. Right. And that means putting ourselves at some level of discomfort instead of just being complacent and making the food that we're comfortable with eating ourselves. And I think to leaders, I think to organizations, I think to society and community leaders, that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Is like, are we finding out what other people want to eat? And instead of waiting for them to ask for it, why don't we go out of our way to be able to learn something new? It's like when you're a fish in water, not that I've ever been a fish in water, but (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do like to swim. Uh, You don't realize that you're actually swimming in water. And I think it's the same thing around privilege or understanding differences unless it's pointed out to you that you're swimming in water, you don't realize that you're swimming in water or that you're breathing in air or, and I think many people, it's not out of a willfulness to be ignorant. It's out of a lack of opportunity to be exposed to different cultures in a way that doesn't feel like I'm going to screw up. And I can think of an example of being invited to a Jewish wedding And I was with my then partner and they had yarmulkes at the door for the men to put on their heads. And I wasn't sure if my spouse should wear one or not. And just feeling this awkwardness of, I wish somebody had told me before so that we didn't appear to be disrespectful because, you know, like if in fact my partner put one on his head, was that disrespectful because he wasn't Jewish or if, he didn't was that disrespectful and then the only the only way you can really know is to ask and i found out later that it was if you forgot to bring yours we have spares Mm. yes there's always spares at the front yeah yeah i i think it's that it's that ability to ask and that comfort and being able to ask and that comfort and being vulnerable to say i don't know and that's a really really hard thing to say for so many people, particularly leaders who've worked so hard to get where they are, that they don't want to admit that. So I think we need to admit what we don't know, myself included. Yeah. And ask for those kinds of things. It's a very vulnerable feeling to ask questions when it comes to issues like this of diversity and inclusion. Partly, I think for me personally, is because I I live in such a diverse society that I kind of feel like there's a lot of stuff I should just know. And yet I don't. Well, there's Um, a difference. I mean, for me, there's a difference between living in a diverse society and having a very inclusive society. We've had diversity for a very long period of time, but it's everybody's been pushed to, I mean, there's small bits here and there where culture peaks through, but ultimately the culture that we live in is predominantly a Eurocentric one where we've quashed any opportunities or any real opportunities for other Canadian cultural perspectives to come forward. And I mean, to me, that just screams colonization or colonialism. Right. And uh, I think if we are going to move forward, we need to be able to ask those questions, leave their doors open, create the opportunities, create social infrastructure so people can come through those doors, but understanding that there's also been barriers for people to walk through those doors. So just because 
we have a policy saying somebody can take a day off doesn't mean somebody's going to take the day off because they're often struggling with their own internalized racism or fears of being marginalized if they were to take that opportunity. So just having a policy does not create it. We must create cultures yeah. that actually be able to create that change. And that that's something that has to start. We can do it in a grassroots way, but we have to break a lot more barriers which is harder when we do it in a grassroots way, which is why I often talk about top-down change. Yeah. It's critical we not just choose leaders, but we educate leaders, we inform leaders, and we have leaders who are willing to learn. Because have, being a leader doesn't mean that you know it all. But if we can inform and educate and have leaders that want to learn and grow, they can help us kind of move this needle in a greater way than anybody else can. And a leader is not just an individual. It can be an organization. Media, for example, is a very big leader. If media can make some of those changes, think about the, think about the education and awareness that people have who might not get to understand people who are different from them. Yeah. What a change. You know, what happens when a large organization uh, like CBC starts to publicly acknowledge and celebrate the cultural holidays of different cultural Canadians. Powerful. Not only does it acknowledge people from those communities, but it educates and informs people who are not from that community. I've seen in some organizations I've worked in what I would call tick-in-the-box exercises around diversity and inclusion. And I can give you a few examples of organizations I've worked in where They've hired somebody to be the diversity and inclusion officer or the director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. And I think it's an important symbolic step. But I've also seen that then becomes in a way relegated. We've done enough. We have somebody in that role and there's going to be some training and we're going to ensure that we have extra questions in our interview processes around seeking different kinds of experience, not necessarily westernized ideas of education. But what I've also seen is that this becomes, and I said it a moment ago, like a check the box or tick the box type of behavior, is that it doesn't actually create the change in an organization around how people treat each other. That there's far more work to do that is often papered over by these, you know, creating these artifacts in organizations that say, look, and you know, when you look at organ uh, many organizations pay to be on these lists of 100 best companies to work for in Canada, which a lot of people don't know, they think that they're just randomly selected for these features that they have. But organizations go to great lengths to fill in forms to say, look, we've got a daycare on site, so we're family friendly. And look, we have a diversity and inclusion office, so we're a very inclusive employer. And so organizations get rewarded for appearing to be diverse, inclusive, and yet the things that they're being measured on are not changed behaviors and how people are treating each other but on these more surface indications that, you know, are a starting point. I think it's important that we actually have these types of things in organizations, but they're nowhere near enough, I believe, as to what we need to make the real changes that you and I seek to help create in society. Well, you often talk about value-based leadership and value-based uh, organizations. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So 
organizations will often have a mission statement, a vision. What do, you know, what, what's the world we aspire to create? The mission. How are we going to create that world? And then the values. What behaviors are we going to adhere to to help us do the work and accomplish that vision? And organizations are, it's an important thing that they have value statements because they are guides for how to make decisions, often in nebulous situations. So an organization, for instance, many organizations have a value of integrity. So if there's a decision that needs to be made and it would be quicker and more effective to cut some corners, but there's a strong value of integrity, it should act as a container or a way to shape the decision that says, no, in fact, we don't do that. We're going to do the right thing and we're going to do it even if it costs more and takes more time because we value integrity. Sadly, a lot of organizations have values that are basically just words that they get put in annual reports. They might be, you know, in beautiful frames and boardrooms and different parts of organizations, you know, offices and hallways. And they are what, you know, we would call the espoused values. We aspire to be all of these things. And we're going to show people that we actually believe values are important. But if you actually go into the organizations and observe the behaviors, particularly of the leaders, you'll often find gaps where I've seen many, many times organizations have a value of respect. And yet when I see how some leaders treat their direct reports because of a hierarchy of what is considered acceptable management practice, there's not a lot of respect happening there. And mm -hmm. if you take it further into issues of diversity and inclusion, and you look especially at hiring practices or promotion practices, managers tend to hire, on the whole, people who are more like them that, not, that are not like them. And this creates a kind of a weird closed system of getting more and more of the same type of people climbing in organizations, even though you have a value, let's say, of respect, of inclusion, of diversity. And it's deeply frustrating to people like me who work in organizational development to keep hearing, well, look, we have this value of respect, but I don't see it lived in the organization. And that no. just really... I really struggle with that because I know people, again, you and I have talked about people being well-intentioned, but unless there's action, it means nothing. Yeah. And interestingly enough, psychologically is that if we want to create emotional change in our experiences, we can't just have a belief. We must act upon that belief repeatedly and not just a single time. And that's how change is created. And I think that's how cultural change is created. So I think, yeah, I 100% agree with you. So in short, we got to put our money where our mouth is. I wanted to thank you all for joining us again for another version of our podcast. Like and follow us on social media. Please also reach out with your stories and share those as we build a community of people being able to speak about the experiences they previously were not ever allowed to or felt ashamed to when it comes to discrimination and marginalization. Thank you very much for joining us and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net. And thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes. And new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. 
please join us again. And until soon.